pleasure of being joined on the discourse by journalist and author Vincent Bevins, who covered Southeast Asia and Brazil at the Los Angeles Times and in the Washington Post. And his current book, The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World, is, and I, I don't want to gush, uh, Mr. Bevins, but I absolutely loved the book so far. I, I'm, not, I'm not a hard sell. It, it's very interesting. It's very readable. It's very um, accessible. And it does a really good job of telling a very complicated story, a very complex story, essentially about how our world has been shaped. So I guess to start off, I'd like to understand, you know, your motivation. Why write this book? Yeah, of course. And thanks. Thanks again for having me um, and for reading it. Uh, I was in Brazil where, where I am now. I mean, I'm calling from Sao Paulo tonight. And I was based here from 2010 to 2016. And I was covering sort of the the rise of this country and then the eventual destruction of the Workers' Party uh, in the impeachment in 2016, and then which led to the, the rise of Jair Bolsonaro. And then I moved to cover all of Southeast Asia for the Washington Post. And um, the I was sent there only because of the opportunity rose. I was not sort of seeking out this story, nor was I looking for the best way to discredit the American empire. I was just arriving to cover the region. But what I found very quickly is that the story of the 1965 massacre was lurking below the surface no matter what I was reporting on. Everything that I was doing in Indonesia related somehow or another back to this massive and unresolved national and even international trauma. And when I would talk about this, either just in my reporting or, you know, just speaking back to my friends in Brazil or in the United States, people did not know about this. People were like, what is that? And not only did I realize that this is a really underreported, underestimated turning point in 20th century history, I realized that because of these unknown connections to South American countries that I know really well and the countries where I know languages, I might have sort of a unique way to come at it and to try to get people to, to understand what really happened by looking at it across South America to Southeast Asia, doing interviews in Indonesian, Spanish, and Portuguese. And I came up with the idea, and, and, and luckily they, they let me do it. But it was really that I got there and I realized, oh, no, no, this is something that like the world does not understand well enough. And hopefully I have some kind of a skill, some kind of skills that would allow me to make a contribution to, to changing that. Well, no, definitely. I have to say that, you know, the story is told in a very compelling way. It's told through a series of narratives from actors who were there. Uh, and and I think it does a really good job of conveying just the, you know, the complexity of, and also the human cost of a lot of these incidents you talk about. And so, I mean, before we even start talking, one of uh, Richard, who's also on this episode with us, uh, mentioned that he wished this book had come out just, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, eight years ago when I was in college, because I could very much see myself reading this kind of book in one of my history classes, uh, one of my anthropology classes. And, you know, but as you said in the book, and as you said when we were first talking, that that would not have been possible. So can you explain a little bit, you know, how this information came to light? Yeah, absolutely. So 10 years ago, it would have been impossible to write this book. Um, it is only possible because of the, the most recent declassified files that have been made available to us and the most recent discoveries that have been found in Indonesia by Indonesian, you know, very brave Indonesian activists and uh, a very lucky but also very skilled Australian academic 
that have, has been able to provide us with the pieces that can, that can be put together to form a big picture. And the reason that we found ourselves in this position at all in the 21st century, I think this very unacceptable position of being unable to understand one of the most important turning points of the last century is that this right-wing terror campaign that established the U.S. ally of General Suharto over the, uh, in dominion over the world's fourth largest country by population was so successful and so ser terribly successful that he managed to control the narrative to this day. And in Indonesia, that narrative, the narrative that General Suharto put into made officially true is still officially true. And so in a very paradoxical and, and, and tragic way, it was, it, was the, the, it was precisely the extent to, of this victory that made it a secret. That makes sense, right? So we know that the clandestine nature of the CIA's work, especially in, during the Cold War, has been hidden, you know, not just uh, from our history textbooks and sort of our curriculum, but also like actually classified. And, you know, that kind of dual, I think, process of obscuring the, essentially the way the, you know, the modern world was shaped, as you lay out in the book, has really done a disservice to not just you know communism world not just communism and communism but just the ability of i would say not again not just the global south but people in the global north to understand the powers that be that have shaped the world right and i think so i wonder if when you were researching this book you found it to be uh you know it to be a worthwhile addition to just like the canon of how the like Western, like Western or rather modern society has, you know, essentially formed, right? You know, how, like how we ended up here today with Trump, with, uh, you know, with, uh, with Bolsonaro, with any other, any, just like the rise of global fascism. Yeah, no, I found you couldn't really understand what's going on right now without understanding this moment in the 20th century. And I think you're really right about the long-term consequences of covert operations, because it's not, it's not, a, it's not conspiracy theory to affirm that the whole point is that you don't find out, right? Like, that's the nature of covert operations. That's why it was done that way in the first place. And so even in the most, quote-unquote, successful of covert operations, whether we're talking about CIA or MI6 or KGB or any, any of the secret clandestine services around the world— by their very nature, you're going to end up with, with a situation where the people occupying a certain civilization do not understand where it came from. And, and obviously, as I lay out in the book, and I think most people will know, even if they haven't read the book or don't know the story, this, the, the, real people that, the people that really bore the brunt of, the, uh, of this in, in the 20th century are the people of the post-colonial world. It's, it's not comparable um, at all to the ways that it distorted, you know, capitalism in uh, society in the global north. But even in countries like the United States, you end up perverting the sort of social fabric because the, the truth of what happened is the kind of stuff that only conspiracy theorists would come up with, right? And so when, especially when the 1975 Church Committee uh, happened in you know, the Senate investigation of CIA activities. This spawned decades of wild um, 
theorizing about what other horrible things the United States government might be doing. And then and it, and it, it, it must do that, right? Like it must undermine trust in what the government is doing because by its very nature, uh, the truth was kept from, from you. So I, I absolutely believe that reinserting it into its proper place in history is absolutely essential to, to understanding what's going on right now and understanding what we, what we want what we might want the next century to be. Absolutely. I mean, before John jumps in here real quick, I just, before we get too far off course, I, I will say we are a very conspiracy theory uh, friendly podcast. I'm, I'm, yes. I I love conspiracy theories from the academic standpoint. I'm very enmeshed in like those kinds of communities, you know, everything ranging from just, you know, general uh, CIA, uh, MK Ultra stuff all the way up to flat, flat right. to flat earth theory. And I mean, you <laughs> <Sure. laughs> Don't worry yeah. about it. I'm not going to go. Every episode. Every goddamn episode. It's more <laughs> relevant than you might imagine, but I'm not going to go down that yeah. I'm not gonna go down that road quite yet. If it comes up again, can't make any promises. But before we get too far into the implications of, you know, of what you found out, I wonder if you could give the listener who probably hasn't read the book yet, but I ho- who I hope will go out and buy the book. Uh, you know, it's available from many outlets. I'll link it in the description. Don't worry. If you could give us sort of a brief, you know, synopsis of like what you talk about in the book just specifically right so i start with um explaining the first second and third worlds and in the english language the term third world has become derogatory because of its misuse after over many decades by essentially uh uh chauvinistic and racist speakers of the english language but the the original third world movement was a very optimistic and hopeful project and what i lay out is at the end of world war ii the united states is by far the most powerful country that's ever existed um then you have the and that and they along with the western european powers that uh are still very advanced capitalist societies form the first world and all of the first world is basically either still imperialist or has been imperialist in its history this this it's not a coincidence that this is the most powerful group and that they have all uh, engaged in overseas conquest and enslavement. Then you have the second world, which is led by Moscow. And so this is either the Soviet Union itself or the territories that the Red Army ended up liberating from the Nazis in World War II. And then you have the vast majority of humanity, which is um, either still fighting to get freedom from European colonizers or has just gotten freedom from European colonizers. And the way that the, the, the new hegemon, the United States, interacts with this new group of people, I think defines the rest of the 20th century. And the, the main character driving um, the third world movement in Southeast Asia is President Sukarno. And President Sukarno is this very, um, he's a big thinker more than a, an administrator. He's kind of a founding father. He's an ideologue, he's an, he's an He's, a, he's, the, he's the prophet of Indonesian identity. He brings together these 13, 15, 17,000 islands that used to be under Dutch control, and he creates and he manages to lead uh, uh, a new nation in some kind of a shared vision, right? And this, and this vision is very anti-imperialist. Um, he, in his youth, uh, uh, insists on the unity, or if, or if not the unity, the uh, the possible synthesis of Marxism and Islam. Uh, he he he, but he's also very good at bringing in uh, the Hindu islands and and Christians and Buddhists and 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 he is at first tolerated by the United States. Um, as the 1950s go on, you see the United States change their 
understanding of Sukarno in Indonesia. He goes from being something that can be tolerated to something that cannot be tolerated. And there's two reasons for that. One is the rise of the Indonesian Communist Party, uh, which is one of the is the oldest communist party in Asia, and it's a very old school Marxist party in the sense that it it, it it's it's a two stage party. They they believe in building capitalism and then socialism much later. Um, but they're winning elections and they're and they're and they're doing better and better. And this really alarms the United States and the CIA, which is the new secret, the new clandestine uh, spy agency of the, of the the world's new hegemon. And two, Sukarno organizes the Third World Movement uh, into at the ba Bandung Conference, which is the Afro-Asian conference of um, post-colonial or still colonized nations of Africa and Asia. And in the beginning of the 19, in the middle of the 1950s, you see the United States start to sort of sick its dogs on Sukarno as a way to smash him back into this order that is taking place under the aegis of, of the United States government. And, and, and this takes a lot of forms um, in the 1950s, some ridiculous, some, I mean, all tragic and cruel, some insane, but none of them work. Um, and as we, as the, uh, so in, in, in first they start funding a right-wing Muslim party, uh, Masumi, and, and that doesn't stop the Indonesian communists from doing better. Then in 1958, the CIA bombs Indonesia, uh, and this attempt to break Indonesia into pieces, or at least to overthrow Sukarno, is based on its successful coups in Iran in 1953 and Guatemala in 1954, but in Indonesia it doesn't work. They get caught. Um, a man named Alan Pope, an American pilot, ends up crashing into an island off the coast of Java, another Indonesian island called Ambon. Java is the, the main island of uh, in, in Indonesia in terms of population and still the most populous island in the world today. And so as, as we go into the 1960s, um, the United States is presented with this challenge that there is a, a, a very outspoken, popular leader. There's a Communist Party, which is rising and rising, but they've kind of already been caught trying to overthrow him. And the book and ultimately tells the story of the way that they do remove Sukarno and crush the Indonesian Communist Party, and the ways that that very horrible victory was copied around the world and also put into practice successfully by U.S. allied anti-communist regimes. That's actually one of the parts of the book that I found particularly interesting. It's one of the parts that you started on, in, especially in the context of, well, I want to say the United States' endless coups over in Bolivia. Latin America right now. Right? We, we have Venezuela, we have Guatemala, we have Bolivia, we have really, you know, just throw a dart at the map, essentially. You can more or less assume that they're working on something somewhere. Um, uh, my point with that is that, like, you mentioned earlier in the book that the anti-communist the anti sentiments that America was able to engender overseas in a lot of these developing countries, third world nations, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it led to uh, the development of a culture that is at least partially internally hostile to communism or, you know, in socialism and even just, like, broad scale. I think this was an interesting part about your book, too. Just, like... You know, I would consider bog standard social security program, broadly speaking, like redistribution of land, you know, uh, uh, you know, not allowing the, the United Fruit Company to kidnap your princess and, and start plantations. The stuff like that was also sort of just 
thrown out of the the crib with communism and socialism like basically any kind of redistributive methods and like part of why i find that like idea to be so compelling is that you lay it out as though like now yeah, America is still being involved in coups in the global south, but they've laid the framework for the environment that is incredibly hostile to this sort of stuff naturally and organically. So there is there is less need for these overt active conspiracies, though they still exist, obviously, uh, than there was right following World War II, you know, when people were much more amenable to the idea of communism because it was just seen as sort of like a legitimate pathway to escape imperialism and colonialism, in some ways just like capitalism. So I wonder if you can sort of speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so the first CIA interventions, and I think it's important to stress that the CIA was initially composed of upper-class, blue-blood guys from Yale secret societies that considered themselves cosmopolitan liberals and were cosmopolitan liberals by the standards of the United States. And their initial task was to, quote-unquote, fight communism, and they were given a huge pile of money to do so. And they were told, you know, and they really wanted to succeed. They wanted to, like, get something done. They they started out by trying to break into Eastern Europe, and they just straight failed. Like, their operations were infiltrated. They sent men to, to their desk. They parachuted people into Albania. The entire, everything they were doing, KGB knew about because they, this was a young empire, right? These, you know... And, and there's a lot of this dynamic between MI6 and CIA at the time that MI6 kind of looked down at CIA as like these adolescents with a lot of money but didn't know what they were doing. And after they fail over and over and over to crack actually communist-led states, they turn to the third world, which even very sympathetic historians of the CIA admit they had no idea about. They didn't understand what the developing world was. They didn't understand what colonization was. They didn't understand what post-colonial movements were all about. And the first two, quote unquote, big successes, as you point out, were not even socialists. I mean, Arbenz in, in Guatemala in 1954 was like, could have been in the Republican Party in the 50s in the United States. I mean, like it, he was very explicit in his um, inaugural address that what he thought needed to happen was that Guatemala needed to advance from feudalism to capitalism so that uh, the, the Guatemala can participate in the, the new global economy. And he wasn't lying. That's really what he thought. Um, and in Iran, it was just the most basic redistribution of resources away from the imperial powers to the Iranian people. But anti-communism could be put to use in order to, um, to crush those countries. Now, the CIA at the time was very proud of themselves. They thought these were big, big successes. Uh, but it became clear to everyone, including them, that this was not really the right way to do it. This was, this was not really a long-term success in either case. Because when you go in there, elbows high, smashing everything up, and everybody in the whole country knows that the CIA overthrew democracy to install a dictator, it falls apart. In both countries, you know, sooner or later, things did fall apart. So in the 60s, you see, uh, at least in the way I see it, you see a shift to a much more subtle type of intervention. And in Indonesia and Brazil are two axiomatic cases of this, where instead of really just like dropping bombs in the presidential palace, or in the case of Iran, hiring street thugs and wrestlers and, and, and circus performers to pretend to be protesting and to riot, they, they transition to a slow and careful long-term cultivation of the armed forces with the ultimate goal of laying the the um, laying the groundwork for a coup if it 
if the opportunity arises. And I think this is like, you know, if I want to be overly schematic, this is I'm like, this is America growing up as imperialism, as imperialists, right? Like this is like becoming a big boy empire. Cause like in the fifties they were doing insanely stupid things like putting Christians in charge of South Korea and South Vietnam. I mean, it's just like, it was very obvious to everyone in the whole world that this is not how you suppress peoples around the world. But in the case of Indonesia and in Brazil, I think to this day, those successes are still with us, right? Like we have not seen a reconfiguration of the social order that was put into place in either country since. And I mean, I'm here right now. I mean, Bolsonaro was the full resurrection of the ideology that powered that 1964 dictatorship, if not the most extreme element that ever emerged within it. And I think, as you point out very correctly, like the way it works now um, is not that the CIA is going to drop bombs on your presidential palace. There are a lot of punitive mechanisms at work for countries that directly oppose the hegemon or in, in, in the global economic system as it exists. And they just can be operated or activated as needed until the country kind of gives in. And it's very effective. Um, but yeah, and I think, but I think it was at this point, at the, after the failed CIA invasion of Indonesia in 1958, that you got this shift to a more subtle but effective kind of imperialism. I think it's a really good point. And it's something that, you know, we talk about in this show a lot, just the ways conspiracies function. You know, because I think a lot of people, just broadly speaking, think conspiracies function the way that the early CIA coups do, which is like, you know, they're clumsy. You have a lot of top-down intervention. You have a lot of top-down, you know, uh, exertion of, of hard power on you know, society, when, you know, I think your book does a good job of laying out, like, no, actually, once you get to a certain point, the conspiracies propagate themselves. You know, people, right. you put people in the right places who know how to act the right ways, and if they don't know how to act that way, you remove them from that place, and you put someone else there who knows how to act the right way without being told. Right. You know, it, it's a it's a fundamental, I think, flaw in the way we understand power, especially in America, uh, to believe that like it requires all this top-down control. And I think the reason why we understand power that way is because of the narratives that you tell in the book, uh, the, the stories that have been sort of the stories of the global South being not only erased from our, you know, sort of curriculum from our sort of cultural memory of the Cold War, but also just the, the, the feeling that American, that power works different in America, power works different in the global South, power works different, you know, that the, when in reality, I think that, you know, in many ways, we're seeing the effects of this global conspiracy on the imagination of people. But I think John wants to get in here with a question as well. Yeah, I just like the dichotomy you're talking about, like the split you're talking about, about that top-down methodology versus like the more subtle, just put whoever in charge. It seems to me like the perfect modern example of that is you have like the Trump administration bumbling into it and trying to almost reenact like a lot of that old school stuff with like they pick Guaido, they're riding Guaido, no matter what happens, Guaido's our man for Venezuela. And meanwhile, like the successful coup they orchestrated was in Bolivia where they didn't really seem to care who came up, but that person was in that person was in the right place at the right time. And now you have a fascist in charge of Bolivia, more in line with US policy, and yet they're still struggling with Guaido. So it's kind of like this methodology that you're describing. It, 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 you can see that it's way more successful because, like you said, it propagates itself. Yeah, why do? And I think this is another dynamic which is lost by the people that think that the CIA come up with one amazing plan and then it all comes together. Why do is uh, reminiscent of another dynamic, which is very important in this book, is that you start trying more and more desperate shit after your first 
couple attempts don't work, right? So, oh, yeah. so Wido is like iteration five or six of the Venezuelan, the attempt to remove the Chavista project, right? And this is something that people really don't understand about like American power in general. And this is this is like it's. Uh, I've been calling it hegemonic privilege is that you're allowed to do as many coups as you want and no one's going to ever get you in trouble. Like there's no referee if you're the hegemon, right? Like if you're anybody else on planet earth and you try to overthrow a foreign government, you get caught. You're going to, there's going to be huge consequences for you. So in, in Guatemala in 1954, for example, it was the third coup attempt that actually worked against Jacobo Arbenz. And the Arbenz found out he like someone gave him the plan and he published it in the newspaper and everyone just they just CIA just did it anyways. And so I think this is um, a dynamic that you see in Venezuela because right 2002 and I, I started my journalism career in, in, in Caracas actually in 2007 2008. So I I know a lot of people that, you know, could tell me what it felt like to be in a place that they knew the CIA was trying to overthrow the, the government. But the 2002 coup was like, if that had worked, and it almost did, that would have been a more classic, organic, well-functioning coup, right? Like, you did have, like, you would have had the local Venezuelan elite immediately in charge. There would have been very little pushback um, from sections of the population that had the, the power to really uh, oppose the new regime. But after that, after you're caught, after you kind of shoot your shot and everybody sees very clearly what you're doing, that's when things get very messy. And, you know, Cuba is the most famous example ever of a, of a, of a coup that didn't work out. I mean, I think, I think there's two reasons that Cuba still exists as a socialist project. One is because Che Guevara was in Guatemala in 1954 and he, he, he knew to be ready. And also, too, it was just really bad luck on the part of Washington. Like, usually you, that was probably going to work. They just messed it up, right? But once you've failed really obviously, you either have to try much more desperate and horrible stuff, which is eventually what happens in Indonesia, or you just kind of deal with this country and demonize it. Uh, and that's what the, ca the case I think you've seen in, in, in Cuba and Venezuela for a long time. That's a very good point. And your book lays out a powerful case that the concept of hegemony for, I think, many U.S. citizens has been obscured like the idea that people are not that people are being indoctrinated especially within this country but also in other countries to have an instinctual fear of communism that is irrational right. they have an instinctual belief that america is a good actor and allowed to you know essentially exert its will abroad right. <laughs> and whatever consequences happen whether it be in indonesia or in vietnam or in korea or in brazil or whatever is simply the cost of you know doing business or justified through the inherent goodness that is hegemonic right. to essentially uh, American neoconservatism. Like, you know, America is the ultimate good. You know, what it does overseas can only be bad insofar as it is like, you know, an anomaly. It's not, doesn't implicate it, American it, yeah. foreign policy. It's never, it's never really who we are, even though it happens every two years for a hundred years. You know, it's, all, it's always an exception, right? It's always like, uh, oh no, well, yeah, there was that, but that's not really what we do. But if you're anybody but the United States, it seems like very much like it is what we do. It is. I mean, it's very much what we do, but I think that's, that's, that is also an aspect of power, too. The ability to, you know, to take things out of context and remove context altogether, whether it be coups in uh, Indonesia or Brazil, but also demand that context be ignored. Demand that the power there be ignored, that patterns be obscured, that patterns, that rather that there 
is no such thing as a pattern that can implicate power. Uh, in that vein, one of the things I found interesting about your book is that you draw comparisons between, you know, the, you know, the local press, the local communist newspapers and their coverage of these coups, even, you know, two of the main, main interlocutors that you talk about and whose narratives are in the book uh, are two Indonesians. And one of which one who runs a, a newspaper whose name I will Zain. Know, uh, remember at this point. Yeah, Zain. It, hmm? yeah, about how American media goes along with these, you know, essentially neoconservative narratives. They go along with these neoliberal narratives. And for the rest of the world, it is increasingly clear that, that it's just propaganda. Like American media is propaganda, but we don't have that. We don't necessarily see it that way. We see ourselves, well, many, of, many Americans see themselves as you know, reading objective truth and informing themselves by listening to MSNBC or the Washington Post or any any number of, you know, acceptable institutions of journalism in heavy quotes. So I wonder if you can speak to the media's role in sort of shaping, you know, anti-communism, both in the past and, you know, currently. Yeah. So I think one thing, I mean, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you noticed that, that part of the book where I compare the way that the Indonesian Communist Party newspaper in the early 50s covers Iran and Guatemala with the way that the New York Times covers Iran and Guatemala. And like, this is a rinky-dink, small operation in Indonesia, very, very far away from Central America, or very far away from Iran. And I come to the conclusion, uncomfortable as it may be for uh, like a mainstream corporate media journalist that I am, the Indonesian Communist Party did a better job. And I think to understand this and... Um, this is this becomes clear in a lot of the the histories of the early CIA and histories of the media just in the post-war period from 1945 to 1975 up until the the sort of scandals that rocked Washington uh, in the 70s the CIA were troops right so if the CIA came to the New York Times or the Washington Post and said hey man we need your help uh, just don't talk about this they would not talk about it and this is very explicit in the case of Guatemala um, the New York Times was asked by the CIA to remove its reporter that figured out what was going on, and they did. And uh, this changes to an extent after the Church Committee in 1975. You get more of an adver adversarial relationship at the surface level. You get more of, auto you know, so you get the automatic suspicion of the CIA that probably all of us grew up with. That You hear the CIA, you kind of think bad stuff. But nobody thought bad stuff at all until the 70s. But what I will also say is that this change in posture that the American media takes after the church committee in 1975, after Watergate, after all of these horrible plots come to light, it doesn't stop all the stuff from happening, right? So in, in the late 70s and the 80s and the 90s, the CIA doesn't stop doing these things. You know, death squads in Guatemala are very effective at killing hundreds of thousands of people despite this you know, surface level shift. So whatever re whatever reorganization there was in the media after the CIA kind of got a bad reputation, it wasn't radical enough to actually stop what was happening yeah. to people around the world. Well, I mean, it feels like just through a cursory examination of like current media that very few lessons were learned. Every so often we see just basically security state propaganda being passed forward as like factual statements. We don't even have to go back so far back as, you know, 9-11 and the road to the war in Iraq. A few weeks ago, you know, we have strong, we know we have uh, outlets repeating that. Uh, Maduro's a strong man. That that uh, the president of Brazil came. That well, the elections were illegitimate, and these stories 
ultimately either turn out to be false, obviously, because there is a pattern of behavior here that should be recognizable to people if they are allowed to recognize it, right? If they're being put into conversation with the sort of the patterns that your book sort of lays bare, uh, you would be, okay, well, hey, you shouldn't trust the CIA. <laughs> you shouldn't trust what the CIA says. You really shouldn't trust American media to be out of, you know, out of step with the security state when it comes to reporting about the global south, especially if socialism or communism is involved. Or, or even domestically. I mean, like Russiagate was a perfect example of this being used domestically as well. And, and you know, we talked about that here, but it's kind of like we're we've taken a lot of the things that we're talking about now, like the, the hybrid warfare and counterinsurgency, and we're applying them domestically all the time. And the media is not even taking that into account. Yeah, it's uh, I think, you know, I think we're all we're all from the United States in this. Right. I mean, I think we're, we have this weird kind of epistemological training in the U.S. that everything resets, you know, like it's it doesn't matter how recent it was that the war in Iraq happened or that the CIA lied to the media about this or that thing. It's just like, oh, well, yeah, well, that does that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Right. And like everybody that I met in, in the course of doing this research around the world over the last three years, everybody I met that had sort of their village destroyed or their friends killed or their husband taken away and disappeared across the board. They all kind of were told right before, Oh yeah, well that stuff doesn't happen anymore. And whenever people kind of say to me, Oh yeah, well like, you know, the, the government, the U S government was bad before, but it's not now. I'm always, I always ask like, well, when, at what point am I supposed to believe that a giant line was drawn in the entire nature of the US government changed and what evidence do I have that that mm -hmm. happened but and there is and there isn't anybody but everyone still just does it anyways and I think uh, it's just kind of easier I think and I mean I'm I spent my entire career in mainstream journalism and I know sort of the extent to which like you know we don't journalists don't have like US corporate journalism doesn't have like armies of people going out and observing every single thing that happens they rely on sources and like sort of the best the, the most the best equipped and most organized and, and, and most reliable sources tend to be state sources or heavily funded NGOs or corporations. And like, it's just, I think this, it's a mixture of sort of deep American ideology that it's our government is the one that is the good one. And also the fact that it's just very difficult to operate with a, with a, a healthy level of skepticism <laughs> because then what do you do? You know, like how do you, or I think it's just like, it just gets tiring and then people just start to believe it again because it's just a lot easier. People tend to draw like arbitrary lines in the sand about when something stopped, you know, not only just the CIA being back, but racism, like, oh, racism was a thing of the past, you know, okay, what, when did it stop? And you can point to like arbitrary, you know, points in time, like the church commission or, you know, the election of Barack Obama or the signing of the civil rights act, like these sort of like tentpole things that occurred that might lead to one to believe that things got better. But then when you look at the actual actions, like the sort of the details there, it becomes clear that it was just you know a bump in an otherwise uh steady trajectory but i also want to highlight something that you just said which i think is very it's quite interesting because the idea of deviating from traditional media narratives the idea of deviating from you know the you know the lore if you will of of corporate media of state you know essentially like the state centrist media for lack of a better term corporate media um is like skeptic skepticism is treated as conspiratorial by nature. Right. Like if you come up with a narrative that's divergent from what, you know, 
someone might read in the New York Times or someone might hear on CNN, that's already put into like the camp of like being conspiratorial. And when you actually confront people, and this is why I suggest people read your book, with like the things the CIA has done, like admitted to have done, right. it becomes very clear that our society has done a very good job of painting skepticism of the security state or skepticism of authority as you know, not only problematic for, you know, and worthy of abuse, but just like laughable or like conspiratorial. Right. I, our media has constructed this image. This is one of my, you know, my little pet peeves of like the conspiracy theorists, like crazy, you know, drug addled, like homeless person on the street right. screaming about like how the government abducted them and like the experiments on them and like, you know, et cetera, et cetera, or did a mind control experiments on them, et cetera, et cetera. And like people laugh at that. People have learned left at it. But the thing is, the government did do mind control experiments. MK Ultra, like that's a fact. You can look it up on Wikipedia. Yeah. Like there are like, books about it. Like, yeah. Yeah. And we just found out, like I wrote an entire book about how that was tied to fucking Manson. And Ted Kaczynski, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, he was. Ted Kaczynski was part of MK Ultra. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, uh, so yeah, it's really hard. And in, in, in my book, so Prince Sihanouk, the leader of Cambodia is a really like, classic example of this because if you have the major governments of the world engaging in covert operations at all times the situation you're going to have is that the only people that are correctly guessing what is going on are by definition conspiracy theorists however at the same time you're going to have lots and lots of other people guessing different stuff and so somebody like me that kind of like is uh, housed within this sort of quote-unquote respectable media I kind of wait until we know what's happening and then I say, oh no, this is what's really happened. But all the people that guessed wrong are conspiracy theorists. And even the people that guessed right at the time were sort of, uh, are discarded as conspiracy theorists. So Prince Sihanouk in the 50s was just, con was accusing the CIA of, of all kinds of wild and insane plots to have him killed or to destroy him or to, have a, to overthrow him in a coup or to send him a present which was meant to apologize for the coup, but which that was actually a bomb. And like he was called by everybody in the quote unquote uh, respectable uh, English language discourse like paranoid or a conspiracy theorist, but he was right about every single thing. And of course, he's only vindicated. 20, 25 years after his country is destroyed, right? So it's a very, I mean, and, and it's, there's, I don't know how to deal with it. I mean, there's no, as I said, it is, it is definitionally the consequence of covert operations is that you're going to get a lot of people guessing. Most of them are going to be wrong. Some are going to be right. And everyone's going to be seen as some kind of a wild uh, uh, conspiracy theorist until the truth really comes out. And this happened in the case of Sukarno, right? So we know in, in Indonesia that the CIA did authorize his assassination. The CIA, of course, bombed his country in 1958. But in the early 60s, when he was very uh, now uh, skeptical of the United States, this was almost pathologized in a very racist and condescending way in the United States. It was seeing like, ah, oh, these people in the third world, these Asians, they don't, they, they don't know how to trust. Uh, you know, they, they, they're, they're immature and they can't, they can't see us for who we really are. But like, how could you blame somebody for being mistrustful after a, people just bombed your, you know, imagine, I mean, I'm from California, like imagine if the Chinese, uh, uh, you know, Chinese pilots bombed LA County three years ago and then China was, ah, oh, mind. sorry, let's just, we'll, we'll, we're gonna, we're gonna be friends now. Like it's, it's a, it's a sort of a depressingly effective mechanism or dynamic, I would say that 
you can't really know what happened. And if you if you guess wrong, you're gonna look stupid. And if you guess right, it's you're still gonna look stupid for 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 a while. And they won't acknowledge that you guessed right. They'll just they'll pretend like no one said anything. It just comes quietly out, and it's on Wikipedia. You know, MK Ultra, right? Like you said, it's on Wikipedia. I mean, I'm thinking back to in your book when you talk about like the impact that the assassination of Patrice Lumumba had on like the second world and on the basically the entire developing world as well. Like, you know, just like this incredibly charismatic leader who was doing his best to uh, essentially uplift his country at post-colonialism and his assassination essentially rocked the world. And I, I know you wonder how many Americans haven't even heard his name before. No, yeah. Haven't even like are completely unaware of not only the history there, but our role in the history there and the implications of that, you know, worldwide, or at least in the global South. One question I had, because this is something that I sort of got the sense of as I was reading, is that like in many places, as I mentioned earlier, like communism was kind of just a red herring for exporting a specific type of neo-colonialism, right? Like or, or as an excuse to export a specific kind of like pro-American neo-colonialism. Like in many of these places, I'm thinking again back to I want to say it was Vietnam, you mentioned in the book, where they were essentially just asking for the same civil liberties that Americans had asked for right. when they were developing, developing after colonialism. And then later in the book, uh, when Bobby Kennedy was confronted and asked about, like, you know, how can you justify sort of like extending this neocolonialism when the history of America, like so, so entrenched in the mythology of America is this idea of shaking off the, like, the shackles of colonialism of the British and having representation and having the right to self-determination. And it kind of just like stumped him. Right. Like the, the question of like, how can you do this to other countries when you don't want it done to right. you is it, it basically essentially it stumped him. But I mean, that's like that kind of mentality, that sort of like uh, cognitive dissonance or lack of cognitive dissonance really has kind of come to define, I think, like the American ideology in some senses. Yeah. Like that's a really that exchange between Nehru, the leader of India, who was also a huge ally of Sukarno and part of the third world movement is really kind of like a delicious and maddening exchange because Nehru basically lectures him, like basically puts him in his place being like, you don't know what you're doing at all. <laughs> Communism at least is offering people something to fight for, some kind of path out of this, this colonial enslavement we've lived through for hundreds of years. You're only offering the third world, the status quo. And like the Kennedy brothers are kind of like stumped and like writing this down, like, Oh, well shit. Like that's not very good. Is it? Um, and you brought up Vietnam, and again, this is something that like Americans, especially dealing with the way that the Vietnam War was presented to the American public for, for so long, Ho Chi Minh in 1945 in his Declaration of Independence from the French, he started the Declaration of Independence by citing and praising the U.S. Declaration of Independence. And Ho Chi Minh at the, by this point was already a full uh, 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 and loyal uh, Marxist. He was, you know, a, a commenter and official he was a communist, absolutely, but he was also trying very hard not to pick a fight with the most powerful nation that ever existed. And he was hoping this would work. Mao also hoped that the United States would give him a break. Um, there was a real moment, a, a crossroads, I think, where a lot of the peoples of the third world appealed to the revolutionary element, the revolutionary moment in American ideology, hoping that the people in the United States would recognize some kind of a solidarity with the peoples of the third world. And then there was this other path that the United States could have taken, which is to, which is animated by, I think, uh, our history as a settler colony and, and as our, our, our 
uh, similarities with the Western European powers that had been the colonizers that had run the world for hundreds of years. And I think uh, it becomes pretty clear that we went with the second one, right? We, we acted, you know, and if you were looking at this from Indonesia or Vietnam or South America, and, you know, I met lots of people that lived through the 50s and 60s. If they were looking up at the new leader of the world, these, these new white guys in North America that were taking over from the other white guys that had been directly controlling us for hundreds of years, there was a brief moment. It's like, oh, are they going to be better? It's like, oh, no, no, they're going to be the same. This is just the new colonialism. And and we're not really surprised because it's obviously a racist country. I mean, they got cowboy movie. You know, they they understood the nature of U.S. racism and and, and how deep it was. I mean, this was not a secret to anybody in the 50s and 60s. And so they go, okay, well, the new... The new, the new boss of the world is going to be racist and imperialist like the old bosses and uh, Iran 53, Guatemala 54. The uh, assistance of the French to reconquer Vietnam just, you know, just across uh, the sea from us. You know, that, you can't, there was no way for them to avoid the conclusion that we had taken the path of just being a kind of a neo-colonial or neo-imperialist power. I mean, that's really interesting. I'm going to open the floor up to uh, my co-hosts, see if they have any questions for you. Before I, th- I want to just hog all your, your brilliant insights. Uh, just quickly on the, you have been doing great, by the way, but uh, on your point, uh, you mentioned the cowboy movies, and it's uh, coincidental because as you were talking before, I was just thinking about James Baldwin's debate with uh, William Buckley, and when he mentions like watching the cowboy movies and kind of discovering that he's been essentially cheering for the bad guys and that he's not the cowboy, uh, that he's the Indian right. in this story, and that <clears throat> that there's probably parallels in that with Western media having wide uh, consumption around the world, that there are probably young children around the world that have consumed or seen various media or images of that kind of thing. And because there's a some instances still a living memory and like you said, they're able to say that, oh, this this white leader or this white group is going to be racist like the last group that was in charge, that the it's kind of countered where in, in the United States, a lot of that understanding and history and recognition of the past and kind of connecting all of those events rather than seeing these as one off independent events that every two years, this isn't really us kind of thing. Yeah, I, 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 just, I, wish you, I wanted you to kind of expand on that if you could. The cow- so uh, yeah, like the the Baldwin. I didn't know about that exchange, but that's really that's really fascinating. So in the book, I outlined that Richard Wright, um, who was uh, the author of a book called Native Son, which I never read, but he was he was an African American intellectual from the United States that went to cover the Bandung Conference in 1955, and he had kind of this weird. Um, if you read his account of it, it's really fascinating because he had this kind of weird conversion too. Because even he went there being like, oh, this third world thing, these guys are unnecessarily anti-American and, you know, come on. And he gets there and he's like, oh, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. Like the colonial legacy is horrifying and I had no idea. And he comes around to fully believing in the Bandung project and he ended up having long conversations with even the conservative Muslim parties that tell him things like, Oh no, no, that we just don't trust the United States. We know that they're, they're not motivated. They're, they're, even, even the, the, the Muslims that are getting direct CIA support from uh, Washington, the, uh, the, the conservative Muslim party tell Richard Wright, like, look, you don't, you guys don't get us. We don't trust you. He finds, he finds the, an instruction manual for teaching Dutch people in the Indonesian language 
and he finds that it consists entirely of orders uh, that you would you will scream. So it's entirely either commands or accusations of theft, and in and and he has this in like he he totally flips. He 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 goes from being like ah, I don't know about this to being like no, the third world movement is the future of the planet. I was just going to quickly say, and then I think uh, Chad wants to get in there, uh, but that the yeah. the intriguing part of uh, what I've seen from your book so far is just trying to catch people up on the kind of the historical events and trends that both kind of lasted de- decades, but culminated in some crucial kind of transformative moments where large changes happened that seemed sudden, but were really responses to those longer trends and patterns. And I think that the having these narratives and these stories of seeing how it's happened throughout history is very enlightening and very helpful. And so uh, I'm, I'm definitely captivated and uh, looking forward to consuming more of the, the text. But uh, go ahead, Chad. No, yeah, the, the book is good as fuck. I love that shit. Like, I think that's a great book. I'm, right. I'm a, uh, I got my PhD, or I was getting my PhD in anthropology. So, like, the fact that it, there are a lot of, like, personal narratives woven in there, I think, is really helpful because it does allow, you, you know, people to identify with the... The, you know, I don't want to say subjects, but the, the interlocutors in these particular uh, countries as well. I will say, this is just a fun fact. D- do you guys know about like the Soviet Union's uh, Western movies that they made? In con- no, that they no made in, I don't know. Yeah. Response to the American ones when at the height of the Western trend? Yeah. So apparently, I mean, I don't know how popular they were, but this is a thing that occurred. I, they're called like, I don't know how to, to really pronounce, but it's spelled like O-S-T-E-R-N. And they were they were fake Western movies done in the style of American movies, like done on like the step wherever wherever they could sort of simulate the you know the Midwest kind of landscape, in, you know in Russia or any of the, like the Soviet satellite states. Um, it, but the thing about them was they were they flipped the hero and villain right. to be like the cowboys as the villains and the Native Americans were the heroes at the time. And so, I mean, yeah, that, that no. was just, you know, it's a fun fact. So, like, the Soviet Union was not unaware of that particular phenomenon at the time. But I, the only other point I wanted to make about that, too, and, and you, this is the point, and I would, something that struck me as I was reading your book in a parallel, because you mentioned how, like, when, at the height of colonialism, at the height of colonialism in Africa, that, you know, the, the French, the Dutch, what, you know, what have you, they, they would obscure certain parts of their own history to teach the, you know, teach the colonial subjects. So they would obscure the French Revolution from, you know, unless, unless they get ideas. Uh, and I, I couldn't help but, like, you know, as we talk about the book and all of these things that have occurred that have shaped the world that Americans just don't know. Right. That, like, it's not so dissimilar to the way we teach ourselves. There are just certain things that we – that there are just certain parts that we – include that flatter us and certain parts that we just remove that might give, you know, Americans who are under the thumb of oppression, the wrong kind of ideas, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, like I, I radicalize people every day by telling them about operation Gladio, like just neighbors who have no fucking clue who grew yeah, up yeah, and just yeah. have no idea. And, uh, literally were using Nazis everywhere post-World War II. Oh yeah. I mean, certainly when it, when it came to picking between fascists and, 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 communists it was it was no choice it was no it was they did not hesitate they they did not wait around to to compromise their morals on that one in the in the wake of world war ii no not at all and no no yeah that uh the 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 case i think you're referring to in the book is that the belgians so this is the congo so this is the long the long story that leads to lumumba and then to his the cia plot to kill him which is by the way the the cia plot to kill him was devised by the same guy that uh, oversaw mk ultra so <laughs> sydney gottlieb he created uh 
he created po- and this is like you, wow. it, it's on you can just go to like <laughs> whatever like white whitehouse.gov and it's all there that but they they he created poison that was going to be put <laughs> into his toothpaste and the local agent on the ground kind of either couldn't get it done or chickened out and they they, they were going to find another way to kill the moomba but it's like it's the kind of thing that you would never believe if it wasn't just like on whitehouse.gov or whatever, but it's right there. Um, but no, so the, the, the Belgians intentionally modified their curriculum for the, the colonial subjects, right? So I just found it right here. So the, um, they, Cong- I'm just going to read, Congolese pupils learned about the Belgian royal, f- royal family, but not the American civil rights movement. And the French Revolution was explained very carefully so as not to make the whole affair seem too attractive in African editions of textbooks. And like Marxism was off, just like even though Marxism was very popular in Western Europe in the early 20th century, it was just like, nope, we are not telling the Africans about that shit at all. And it was like, yeah, you don't want it. They didn't want to give them ideas. And they were very, you know, because they have we have like these colonial manuals, they admit that like, oh, no, 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 we don't like they're not very horrible way they, they put it like they're not mature enough to get the, for these for these ideas but clearly what they're telling each other is we don't want we don't want them to they, we don't want them to think the way we do because they're gonna they're gonna realize that this is an unjust situation we put them in oh no i mean i think that's a fa- i mean a fair point uh like if you teach people that they are created equally and have unalienable rights and then you try to alienate the, those right, right. Um, they will they will question how you sort of square that circle uh, and then, you know, that creates a very, you know, that creates a very weird, uh, awkward moment. No one wants to be asked, no one wants to be asked like Bobby Kennedy was asked, like, Hey, you know, like yeah. you know, how are you enslaving people? But your constitution, but your constitution says like, you can't have slavery. Like it's, you know, like, I, you, again, you would think yeah. though that like Americans would have answers for those things because it must be mm-hmm. on people's minds, right? Like, okay, well, how do you do, how do you justify, <laughs> how do you got prison labor, motherfucker? Like, how do you justify X if you, do, if you believe Y, but I think that you lay out in the book and just generally speaking, also talking about the sort of like their modification of what, uh, colonial subjects were taught. It's just like, yeah, all this information's out there and it's actually quite yeah, it's readily all there. accessible, but it, it yeah, but it kind of just goes in one ear and out the other. Like, if you tell somebody about MK Ultra, they, they will listen to you, and it'll be really interesting. But, like, a few mm-hmm. days later, it'll kind of just, well, like, 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 just phase out of the memory. What are you supposed to do with that information? Yeah. You know? Like, how are you supposed to integrate that into your fucking life where you, like, drive around and, like, go to Subway and, like, you know, work your – like, what are you supposed to do? And, like, so it just kind of – it just kind of falls away, you know? And – uh and I yeah. think that's a very tragic thing. Like, how are you supposed to like fit that into your, your, your day to day life? And like what you said about, so right now we have the coronavirus pandemic. And as a result of this, uh, a lot of people in the United States are very upset at China. And I think the real reason they're upset at China is because China looks better than we do right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think that China's blameless in the way that it handled. I mean, I don't think, I don't think any would be, it would have been very hard to be blameless, but, um, but I think the real issue is that the United States is really scared that we look bad and they look good. And you yep. have you have these very um, I'm going to say China's dipping its toe in the waters of actually attacking us with Force propaganda. Projection. Yeah. But like they're, they're like kind of, you know, there was like that one Twitter video where they ridiculed Trump's response to coronavirus or whatever. But I think if China really went for it. Americans would be really shocked how much shit that they can come up with and like how 
all of it would just be right. You know, like what if China just turned around tomorrow and was like, yeah, you have 2 million people in jail and African-Americans are five times more like, you know, five times more. Yeah. (laughs) Have you seen their pamphlets that they give out? Like Americans are uniquely ignorant about like the atrocities that go on in their own country. I feel like sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Like we have, we have stands, we have capitalist stand accounts on Twitter that go around and talk about like the number of deaths on socialism. You're like, man, how many people died in prison in America just this year? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the colonization of the European colonization of the Americas killed 90% of the population. Uh, and so even, you know, even the most, the horrifying moments of communism didn't come close to that. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up China, though, because we've been talking about on the show, you know, a post-COVID-19, you know, a post-COVID-19 world and like what China's role in that looks like. And just, you know, we love you, President this, G. I mean, I look, <laughs> I, I, China, look China, has some pro- China has some problems, but the way America's looking, it, it's going to get headed. You know, we might just have to learn. We might just have to learn Mandarin is what I'm trying to say. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things are just not going well here. But I mean, I, w- I went on Chinese state TV like four hours ago. I think, you know, you mentioned the Marshall Plan in your book when you talk about the reconfiguration of Europe and the ways in which sort of the United States tried to use both like monetary and just like PSYOP incentives, like writing campaigns to Italy, to Italian relatives to prevent the rise of communism in, you know, post like post World War Two economically devastated, infrastructurally devastated uh, nation states. And it seems as though, like, just this week, China was stepping up to donate more money to who? Stepping up to donate more money to Africa. Essentially fulfill a lot of roles or a lot of leadership positions that the United States would have liked to either go unfilled or to be filled by us. And there's very, it seems like there's very little we can do about that other than gin up more sort of like anti-China right. racism. But I think it looks silly when you have like 5,000 people dying in the streets in America to gin up anti-China racism. And so I, I guess I wonder, I wonder in your opinion, if you think that we are at maybe a turning point in a different direction. Yeah, I mean, I worry. So, I mean, I, I, think, we're, I think we're at another crossroads, right? Like, like in the very, very similar to the way that we were in 1945, where, I, I, as I laid out earlier, there was sort of, are we going to fall in our revolutionary ideals, the ones we pretend that we believe in, or are we going to become uh, like our cousins in Europe and just become neo imperialists? And I think there's a, there's another turning, there's another crossroads, and I think I'm not hugely optimistic, but on the, I think one option that we might take is to, to in a very kind of panicked and defensive and thoughtless way flex these cold war muscles and just to try to blame everything on communism again and i think that would be very that would be very disastrous because not only because we're much weaker than we were in 1945 but because the united states is not viewed in the same way that it was in 1945 you know a lot of the world is very skeptical about what we're really up to um and then the other the other option would be to try to learn from the way that Europe uh, moved into a post-imperial decline, right? Like to try to manage a transition into a, a multipolar world rather than one where it's either, you know, all or nothing. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm, the reason I'm probably not optimistic is I spent three years like with my head in the most horrible stuff you can imagine. But I think that we are at, at that crossroads. And I, and, I, and I worry that we're going to, in moment of, insecurity flex the muscles we've built up over the last hundred years rather than take a deep breath and think about what we can what we can do intelligently i mean i agree with you I, too. it was kind of a rhetorical question on my end i, I don't think america's <laughs> going to do anything positive, positive with COVID-19. Uh, uh, re- 
I was just going to say, recently, uh, the Trump administration's arms control negotiator said that the United States is prepared to spend Russia and China into oblivion. Yeah, like, how? That's like, where we're how at. How are we going to do that? We, we, don't have, we don't have the resources. We don't have the internal stuff anymore. This is also based on a misreading of the Cold War. Like, a lot of foreign policy elites in Washington, D.C. sort of drank the Reagan bullshit Kool-Aid. Like, like... The, the Reagan era propaganda is that the reason the Soviet Union fell is because we spent so much money on weapons. It's just it's not true. It's the exact opposite. The reason the Soviet Union fell is because Gorbachev thought that he had some space to try out some reforms that totally failed. Um, but if you believe that the reason the Soviet Union fell is because the United States built loads of weapons that it was never going to use, you might come to the same conclusion that you could do the same thing again with China. But like... Again, like I think the 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 case of 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 Che in 1954, or even Mao in 1965, in the case of this Indonesian genocide, is very instructive because Mao warned the Indonesian Communist Party, "You need to arm because you know the bourgeoisie could be coming for you." And I, I just I think it's very cute that the United States thinks that China has not been planning for this for 40 years. You know, I don't know what their I don't know what their plan is exactly. But you know that they've had some kind of a, 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 a contingency plan for when America starts to freak out, right? Like, they're not going to be like, oh, shit, yep. they're buying twice as many nukes. I guess we have to bankrupt our economy now. Like, it just doesn't make sense, right? Like, they, you know, like the, the uh, history is on their side. I mean, this is nothing that people in the United States really don't uh, understand. And, like, again, I, I really think that the, the Chinese system is not very great and, and they do horrible things very often. But... Chinese GDP is one-sixth of GDP in the United States. Like, they are way, way behind us in terms of actual wealth per person. It's just that there's way more people. I mean, you can't really fight gravity forever when you have a country which is moderately well-run and has that many people. Right. I mean, like, I was trying to tell my neoliberal family members this. It's like, you know, China and India had the largest economy in the world until we econ- until we colonized them uh, under brutal colonization policies that uh, extracted all their wealth. Like it's gonna happen again. And I just kind of wanted to go back a bit to uh, your point about uh, kind of the elimination of this information and the kind of the memory and the understanding of how we got here. And one of the things that came to my mind when you were talking about that is Bolsonaro's. Uh, attempts to kind of get rid of Paulo right. Freire and the Freirean education and pedagogy within Brazil. And I just, I thought you might have some interesting insights about that. Yeah. So I'm sitting in Sao Paulo right now and like I'm in downtown, uh, I mean, in, in the, the, the center of the most important city in South America. And this is like a really nice place, but it's like, it's Mad Max out there. It's absolutely awful. And it's, be, and the reason for that is Bolsonaro's absolute opposition to, any kind of responsibility when it comes to the pandemic. So like in a very real sense, like every day I, I kind of feel the effects of this kind of insane administration. But the really interesting thing about Bolsonaro is he has no political project. Like it's, it's all culture war shit. It's all about de-indoctrinating the school system, getting Paulo Freire out of there, destroying the left, stopping uh, the, the secret Marxism, which is taking over the country. Like, he has no, he's not a neoliberal. He doesn't even, he doesn't care. Like if you, if you were to offer him full state intervention in the economy, like social democracy, full neoliberalism, anarcho-capitalism, he doesn't give a shit. 
what his his project is entirely about wiping the left and any of its traces real or imagined off the face of the earth and it's a very strange it was strange before he was needed uh, to be the president and it's doubly strange now that there's this like very real thing that the government should be doing and all they care about is this this culture war um crusade He'd been watching too many Dave Rubin videos on YouTube. That's that's, that's a telltale sign. Of, that's a telltale sign of of, of Rubin brain, uh, just obsession. I mean, I'm not like it's not. It's way it's way more true than you think. Like the right wing Bolsonarista movement is to a really large extent informed by new American YouTube channels, and like it sounds like it sounds stupid, but that's I'm not exaggerating. Like yeah. it is stupid. It's just I mean it's just real. <laughs> it's just true. Yeah. Well, yeah, no. Well, now we've entered the, we've entered the age of American history where there's no contradiction between like absolute ridiculousness and just you know fact. Like, but no, like this generation of far right Brazilian politicians like cut their teeth on on like the YouTube videos that pop up on the right hand uh, of of your browser. You know, like that's like actually where it came from. It's 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 very very strange. It's very weird. Soon China's going to be run by that weird guy who who narrates those Epic Times, uh, those Epic Times ads. Oh, is 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 China the is Epic yeah. Times the Fallen Gong? Yeah, they're one? the ones run by the cult. It's it, it's so transparent though. Like it's it's hard to even be mad. It's like how do you even fall for this? Because like all they do, yeah. I will admit, I, I do enjoy watching the video where like the Chinese Communist Party burned down their printing press. That's one of my favorite things to watch for fun on YouTube. I, I just imagine, I just imagine it's real, <laughs> like that the communists burned uh, down this like, uh, like obvious rat, like a two person like. It, uh, who funds them? I mean, I'm, I know it's somehow or another. Uh, people I respect have gone deeper into this than I have, but like they're funded by somebody, right? That whole Falun Gong thing. I think so. I mean, I assume that it's partially <laughs> from like those Shin Yun uh, ballet dance recitals, ticket sales. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Yasha Levine has done some work on this, and uh, he's tied a lot of money back to the U.S. government. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I mean, I mean, I'm from where are you where are you guys all located at the moment? I'm in New York City. I'm in Rhode Island, Washington State. Like, I'm from Los Angeles. When I go home, like those, when you drive on the streets of LA, those like it's like sixty percent of the billboards is those those dance shows and it's like uh, it only, only like much later clicked i was like oh this is okay okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i would look at <laughs> before i found out it was like anti-communist propaganda and now i'm just gonna get really high and go see one <laughs> <laughs> i'm i bet it's good and i'm still i'm sure that you know it seems like it's probably a good show in new york you know? city they do like the little street parades um performances they, they just do a portion of they do like a little parade to like demonstrate the uh like the dances it's interesting and it's funny and I, i've heard that the actual performance is, is a lot more heavy-handed with like anti-ccp propaganda uh, uh, yeah, so yeah. i mean your mileage may vary there yeah i mean it's uh and you know the china know you know i don't know i mean again i don't china knows you know they're not you know they know what's going you know they know what's going on and like they're not they <laughs> they they you, it's very hard to blame them for being sort of defensive and 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 um, oh no you can't suspicious you can't. no not at all you know one of the topics we talk about in the show a lot is in relation to conspiracy theories is that like a lot of times what power manifests as is just like the simple inability to like draw patterns or to be made fearful or made to feel like you're losing your mind if you just go like oh yeah well I mean the state has lied a thousand times before they're probably lying now like that like that thought Fox brain. Is, Hmm? Yeah, I mean, like that thought is like treated like 
is we've been indoctrinated to the point where like having that thought is something that is you know I would say even internally to yourself you know something that like you, like you chastise yourself for a little bit like I don't because I I don't you know I don't care but like in, but generally speaking I think that there is like this mentality where it's like if you were to make the the obvious connections like hey you know what police brutality you know black people shouldn't trust the cops like uh they shouldn't trust the cops they shouldn't talk to the police that's treated like an unreasonable reaction to what i would argue is like a pattern of abuse and the same thing is true about the global south you know you know if if bolivia comes back and you know they, they managed to have a successful let's say even vaguely liberal uh democracy and america and like and they stop wanting to engage with america and, and friendly people will pretend as though like they don't understand why that is it's true to the extent that marginalized populations both in in like globally and domestically just don't have a right to self-defense and you know the act the very act of self-defense or, prepar or preparation for self-defense or even just like not assuming the inherent morality of america is viewed as being particularly offensive i mean i would just highlight julian assange and chelsea manning and it's like you know the only two people who went to jail for america's war crimes were the people who exposed them yep yeah, and like you know, we talk about the church, uh, the church committee, but like, who in the history of the CIA like even got like a demotion for destroying another country? Yeah, Bush became alone. vice fucking president after he's put in charge after that. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's it's it's there's no reason to believe that they would ever uh, have want to change. And I think what you pointed out about the ability or inability to see patterns is really important. So, in like one thing that I really try to do in the book is I try to point out that we've been trained, correctly or not to find it very easy to view anything a communist government does as part of communism as a big thing. So if Pol Pot does this or if Stalin did that or if China is this, it's all that's communism, communism. Uh, but we do not make the same kind of connections when we're talking about the anti-communist right in the 20th century. And to an equal or maybe larger extent, that was really an international movement that like traded people across countries. They learned from each other. They adopted technologies and terror techniques that were developed in different countries. And like for whatever reason, we just do not see it as a, a single entity. We all we see each we see each U.S. backed dictator as some kind of an exception, even though it was like a vast majority of the plan of, 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 of certain parts of the planet. And like, hopefully with enough historical distance or with this, this new crossroads in, in the global system that allows us to be like, oh, no, no, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, that's what American hegemony yeah. meant, really, is this, is, is this kind of a, a network. Right, but I'm, I'm just not hopeful that that will be carried forward as part of our new memory and our, part of our new uh, collective history as Americans because, like, we, we've known a whole bunch of stuff even before this that – you know, nobody still takes into account. So like all the things we were talking about earlier about it, things being memory hold, you know, I just have a feeling like you said, when you're on your daily trip to Subway or going about your job, how are you supposed to incorporate this into your worldview? And I fear, fear that many people just won't. Yeah. yeah I'm sorry, excuse me, your daily trip to Subway? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. He said something about Subway. I don't go to you, Subway. You only, you only go to Subway once well, a I day. Well, I mean, my bazooka only has one. <laughs> only has one. It only holds one shell at a time. So, you know, I got to order it. It takes 24 hours to be delivered by Amazon alone. So, you know, it's, it, it's a whole process. But, no, when you, tell us about your daily trips to Subway, uh, Mr. Bevins. No, no. So, uh. No, I, well, I've, I've been a subway actually since the pandemic started in Brazil because it's open. But um, the no, but I think well, I think that you raise an important point as to whether or not the United States will be able to integrate this 
history into its collective consciousness. But I also think it's worth asking whether or not it matters. You know, it was like, is fixing the United States uh, possible? possible or even important for the next hundred? You know, like I, I haven't lived in the United States for a very long time. And a lot of time people were like, well, what's the role of the U.S. left? And I was like, I don't know. And, and like in like the darkest moments of my research on this book, I think I tweeted something like being like, look, the United States is not going to lead the world in socialism. The, the world historical task for set before us is to go away. And like, I don't think, I don't know if I actually really, really believe that, but I think it's possible that you're right, but it also that it doesn't matter that the United States fails to integrate this history into our collective consciousness in the short term. But because of the changing balance of power in the globe, that's yeah. okay. No, I mean, I agree with you, actually. I think we talked about that on the show before, where it's like there is a certain amount of American exceptionalism to even believe that, like, the American left has the capability to be a leader on the global stage when, you know, again, talking about how power functions at home, much like it functions abroad, there's been just widespread assassinations of anybody who might even be put a potentially you know, a potential like left wing leader in America since the since the 60s. You know, we have Martin Luther King Jr. We have Malcolm X. We have any number of like leaders who've been assassinated. And we know that the FBI is still engaged in, you know, assassinations and just entrapment schemes and all sorts of just like shady business to essentially make sure that that kind of thing never happens at home. While, you know, not no offense to anyone who listens, like while a lot of like kind of the intellectual left sort of troubles itself less about like the realities of the security state and the realities of like psyops and you know just basically just assassinations and more about like you know can we can we solve the problems that we have by getting more op-ed space in any particular mainstream outlet which i mean i think that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's a fool's gambit because you know it's kind of this might be a tautology but like if you're publishing there there like it's probably not as meaningful as you think it, <laughs> you think it is because other yeah, i mean it's just i don't yeah i don't i just think you know, it gets hard. Like, so, you know, it's hard. But what, you know, what are you supposed to do if you're, if your particular class or nationality is not like the subject of history? And like, I think that'll be a really, a really difficult adjustment for the United States to make because for the last 250 years, we've really believed that we are like the protagonist of the film that is planet earth. And like, I think it'll be very psychologically disruptive to, for the United States to realize that it's just not true anymore. And that, that worries me, right? Because uh, people with power losing it are often a lot more dangerous than people Cornered without rat. any power mm -hmm. dema demanding it. Yeah, you know, one of the things I got from your book that I think is important also domestically is just how often, and sort of reading about the Carthyism and Hewak, et cetera, you know, one of the things that strikes me about that too is just how how often anti-communism just became a blanket excuse to engage in the many projects domestically that we were already interested in. So I'm thinking, of course, like the Lavender Scare and purging all LGBT people from like positions of power in government. Um, you know, I'm thinking of anti-communist rhetoric from the KKK aimed at black people and used as an excuse to terrorize blacks and, uh, and Jewish people around uh, the country and how that became sort of more acceptable because it was given the veil of anti-communism and how we've seen a little bit of that come back with the Russiagate stuff where it's like, oh, Russia is, you know, stoking division in America by pointing out that cops shoot a lot of black people. <laughs> and, you know, the, yeah. and, 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 and <laughs> yeah. your point about China comes to that too, where it's like, you know, what if China starts saying that, uh, talking 
talking about our prison industrial complex. It's like, well, they already do, but I mean, it, it would be a it would probably be framed as some sort of communist plot. You know, it would be right. used as like, you know, it would be used as a way to further entrench these sort of pro-capitalist systems into our infrastructure because they've suddenly taken on this this sort of uh not resistance. Yeah. Like, yeah, now now uh yeah, uh, pr- prison labor is uh is is the American way just cuz right. China it's doesn't freedom. like it. Yeah, you know. It's freedom. It, you know, it, yeah. it's anti-communism, and, nothing, and the only thing America loves more than uh, anti-communism is racism. Yeah. And so, you know, it is what it is. But, I mean, I think that's a, a decent place to end it. If you want to sort of tell people where they can keep up with you, uh, read your work, buy this book. If you have any preferred vendors, just let them know, and we'll just add it to the, the notes. Yeah, no, yeah. Just thanks thanks so much for, for having me and for, for thinking through this all these issues so carefully. Our pleasure. Um, yeah. Yeah, like uh, the book and, you know, people can buy the book wherever they um, they normally buy books. I, I hope some people do. I need to I'm still trying to make the case sort of to the publishing world like that this book should be pushed rather than just kind of, you know, this nice project. I think it should be pushed. And this is a kind of a fluffy question. And I, I hate to interrupt you, but what do you hope people get out of reading this book specifically. Who do you think this book, you know, would benefit most? I really want it to get translated. Uh, it's into Spanish, Portuguese, Chinese, German, you know. And, and, and to get that to, to happen, that has to like sort of hit well enough in the United States that they'll do that. But really, like, I don't really even know what the lessons are from this book are. Like, I spent three years, like, learning what this story really was. And I knew that the story sort of had to be put out there. But I'm still not exactly sure what it means or how we should move on from it. So I just kind of hope other people can find out what it is themselves and, and, and sort of also get involved in thinking through <laughs> what, how we deal with this, uh, with the, na- this, the, this, this, uh, this, this certain na- type of hegemony. I mean, that sounds good to me. Sometimes all you can do is map out the chaos and like let people sort of come to their own uh, conclusions. Cause I think, yeah. you know, and I think that's an important job because a lot of this stuff, like once you put it in front of people, assuming they don't kind of have one of those just like uh, blank floor rides looks, people are offended by a lot of this stuff. They're offended by mass assassination uh, uh, programs. They're offended by like prison labor. They're offended by like genocide. And the fact that, you know, the government, the media knows people are offended by it, I think is probably why it's kept yeah. from people. <laughs> but yeah, you know what? Why don't you just tell people where they can keep up with your work and we'll just leave it there. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, Vincent, but with two N, so V-I-N-N. C-E-N-T. Uh, you could buy the book at the Jakarta method.com that I like, I lay out there where you can avoid Amazon best or buy it if you're outside the United States. But other than that, just wherever you can pick up the book or, uh, uh, any interest at all is appreciated. Well, you know what? We loved having you on Vincent. It was, it's a great, amazing. Book. I really can't, uh, speak mm-hmm. highly enough about it. So, I mean, I would heavily suggest that you, you know, if you're listening to this episode, if you're interested in what some what Vincent said, even if you don't think that you are interested in what Vincent has to say, I, I can guarantee you the stories in this book just from the, you know, from the position of like a good read are a good read, but they're also very infuriating. Your book is fucking infuriating, Vincent. Have you been told that yet? Like it, it's very frustrating yeah, 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 to have yeah. it all la- they'll have it all laid out in <laughs> yeah. front of you and like, oh yeah, this all happened. And you're like, yep. it's 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 a very frustrating thing yeah. to read. But I I, I f- would I, I couldn't put it down essentially. I feel like the less interested somebody would be in this book, the more they need to read it. So <laughs> Yes. <laughs>